Washington to um, Brighton Harbor and San Juan Islands, a really beautiful place if anybody's been out there. Uh, but that's where we really first got introduced to the homebrewing scene and great craft beer and brewing beer when we uh, worked and lived up there. And I'll never forget two great captains, boat captains, that I had worked with out there that were living on this old wooden boat, Sammy Trawler converted and homebrewing on this liveaboard wooden boat where they use the bilge and the hold as kind of their storage for, for letting their beer just sit and stay at a nice cool 50 degrees because the water doesn't get much warmer than that out uh, here in Washington. So uh, that's where we first got introduced to it. Andrew was working for uh, French Street Ale House, this really small scale ale house in San Juan Brewing Co. on a seven barrel system. And we just really fell in love with craft beer and homebrewing it got the wheels spinning. Um, from there, we still bounced around the West Coast a bit and ended up finding ourselves in Maui at one point. Andrew went from Maui to the company. Uh, and this idea of, of growing hops kind of popped into our head uh, over the years. And we ended up ordering rhizomes and sending them back to Peter's parents in New Jersey, um, growing some out at my parents' farm out in Long Island, down in San Diego, even out in Maui. We just kept thinking and having this vision of, of starting a hot bird back here, back east, and kind of getting back to our roots and our family, and um, we finally went for it uh, last year. Uh, Farms of Pine uh, was born in 2012 out in Peconic, New York, and our goal is really to redefine local beer. New York is a place that historically has had hops grown. Um, hundred years ago or so, so it's a little bit of relearning the nature of, of how to do it uh, and figuring it all out, a little trial by error, uh, learning as we go. Uh, but our, our goal and our focus is not just to raise a quality-driven product um, and a local hop product, uh, but to do so sustainably. So we've got a couple of these fundamentals we like to keep in mind in how we went about setting up our vision for our hop yard. Uh, and bringing beer, um, truly local beer, with an option to source these ingredients locally um, back to the North Fork, to Long Island, to New York uh, as a whole. So uh, we are farm to pint. And uh, that question always arises when we first started a year ago. Well, we, had, we had planted a few plants out in Peconic as a trial, about nine plants or so in 2011. 
question was, oh, can you even grow hops out here? People are at work looking at us funny. My family's like, you guys are crazy kids bouncing all over. I don't know. We finally, we did it. We did a little trial plot, and uh, my uncle and cousin have gotten into homebrewing, and they, they did a great harvest before Hurricane Irene came through, and it was successful. So last year, our whole motivation was, well, let's, let's do this. Let's make this a reality and not just put in nine plants, let's put in a thousand. Let's do a one-acre hop yard uh, and, and set it up. Uh, but people were looking around at us like, well, what are you guys thinking of doing? And, you know, there's always been this question of, can, can we grow hops here? And we know it's been done in the past. And just a little background on hops for anybody, you know, um, unfamiliar with them is they do grow best in the latitudes between 30 and 52 degrees north or south, so both in the northern and southern hemisphere. Um, our latitude right here in Peconic um, is at 41.03 degrees north, so we're smacked out in the middle of that. Um, hops tend to be actually uh, photoperiodic and like to have a, a change in the day length. Uh, seasonally, and that's why you'll find they're growing best at these latitudes versus, say, closer to the equator. Uh, so I just like to, to point that out. That's why you have specific regions around the world that are really known as hop-growing regions. Uh, early American settlers have found hops growing in the wild, and there's both wild hops and cultivated hops uh, in North America, in Europe, and Asia. So you've got a lot of different cultivation practices that have gone into getting us the varieties that we have today used in the beer that we, we brew, um, and still more research going into developing new cultivars that are more disease resistant or have a higher alpha level or better aroma, um, and, and etc. So uh, the first commercial brewery uh, was actually put in what is now the southern tip of Manhattan uh, back during the colonial time. So it's pretty cool to think about that. And hops were actually first planted in Massachusetts in 1629. So there, there really is this rich history here on the East Coast for hops. And kind of a, a fun and cool thing to think about is that by 1879, New York State was growing 80% of American hops. And if you're wondering what that number is like, um, by 1880, New York was producing 21 million pounds of hops annually. So it's pretty impressive to think about what the craft beer movement was uh, back then. And uh, there's kind of just a fun little excerpt uh, that I wanted to, to read to you guys. Um, Brewers needed more hops that could be collected in the woods, and the first hop gardens were planted in 1629. During the next 200 years, farmers in almost every colony in the state attempted to cultivate hops. According to the 1850 U.S. Census, hops were grown in 33 of the then 35 states, although often in quantities so small they could barely be called commercial. Um, and what's also interesting is that by 1879-1880, with New York growing such a high percentage of American hops, it did, it did quickly change. Um, and within 10 years, the Pacific Coast produced more hops than New York. And by the time Prohibition began, New York farmers grew less than 4% of the national crop. So there was this big shift out to the West Coast. Uh, but we go back, New York was a great hop-growing region. So we know uh, it was done, and we're trying to really bring that, bring that back. So we all know what it means to brew beer, various grains like your barley's or wheat's. Uh, hops, water, and yeast, but what does it mean to grow beer? Uh, so for us, and for anybody that's growing hops currently or hoping to do so, uh, hops, of course, the bittering and aromatic balance to the beer, the preservative, uh, but from that uh, anatomy or botan botanical viewpoint, I'll just run through a couple of things. Uh, Humulus lupulus is the genus and species name, and that really derives from uh, humulus goes back to Germanic, Germanic uh, root, uh, really referring to the hops themselves or a fruit-bearing plant, uh, of course producing those great flowers or buds. And lupulus comes uh, from lupus, referring to um, wolf-like. So these really are considered a wolf-like growing 
plant. Um, so that's kind of interesting when we talk about that scientific perspective. They're known as a twisting vine, or more properly called as a vine with a V. They don't actually have like tendrils, like a pea shoot or, or a true vine would have these tendrils that it sends out to kind of grab onto things. Uh, in terms of hops being a vine, they're going to be climbing up things. And here in the Northern Hemisphere, they're climbing, trying to grab onto something. They're climbing in a clockwise fashion. So uh, you are growing hops. You always want to make sure whenever you twist them or start training them onto that string or twine or coir that you're doing so in a clockwise fashion and then they'll naturally continue to do that um, with the sunlight. Uh, on that quick note too, with the plant itself along that stem, you'll notice that they have a lot of fine hairs or bristles, spines, um, and that's what's allowing them to grab onto anything coarse uh, like a, a twine or a string. So it's a little bit about how they're climbing and growing. Well, they are dioecious, so that means that there's male and female plants. So if you were to start growing a hop from a seed, you wouldn't necessarily know until it started producing the flowers or the fruit, the cones, whether it was male or female. And that's why whenever you order hops online, for example, you'll get a rhizome, you'll get a rootstock structure, because you want to be getting it from the female plant. Um, same thing if you were to take cuttings, it would be from a female plant uh, because the females are the ones that are producing the hops with the lupulin. And we all love the lupulin because that's what contains the resins for producing um, our bittering agents and aromatic agents for the beer. So the female plants are the ones we want. Um, they are perennial below the ground. So they do die back each year. That root structure, all those rhizomes are going to be going through a period of dormancy in the winter. That's important that they do go through this wintering period. And every spring they'll regrow, or you could consider them an annual above ground, uh, where they'll regrow new shoots and start sprouting up from that every spring. Uh, they can grow up to 12 inches or a foot a day. Pretty, pretty cool. You can literally watch hops grow, uh, especially when you get into July. <laughs> when you get into July, uh, you can you can see from one day to the next and measure the incredible growth. It's it's literally before your eyes. Um, that's a pretty fun thing we like to do. It's just drink a beer and watch them grow. So, uh, photoperiodic, the day length is critical for them to flower. So the hops will go through this vegetative period where they're climbing, 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 growing. And then after June 21st and the solstice, um, they're actually going to start flowering. So as the days get shorter, that's a signal to the plant to start flowering or producing the actual hops. So uh, that is also part of the reason why they grow best at those certain latitudes. You don't find the same sort of yield or production if you were to try to grow hops closer to the equator. You just don't have enough variation in day length um, on a seasonal basis. But up here, 40 degrees, 45, 50 degrees, um, they do a lot better because of that signal naturally to the plant uh, to start, start flowering. It helps to increase the yield. Um, all right, so for optimal results, I told you I'd throw a few of those in there. Uh, if you're going to be growing a hop on your own in your own backyard, a couple of different things that they're going to need. Uh, one is going to be full sun. Ideally, full sun for six to eight hours. So that's going to be the best. They love that sun. That's going to just allow them to climb, climb, climb. Uh, loose, well-drained soil. So hops are really tolerant of a lot of variety types in the soil, but from our own experience, when we, uh, we tried growing a few out in Maui, we had a really clay-like soil out there. A few of them, just they just rotted. They got so waterlogged. Uh, so you are, and they'll, they'll do well in sandy soil as well, uh, but you really want to have a very compost-rich or nutrient-rich um, drainable soil is going to be optimal, and that's, you know, optimal conditions mean you get a higher yield for your actual pots. Uh, frequent watering, they are thirsty, just like many of us are. They love, um, instead of beer, <laughs> they love a lot of water. So whenever watering them, when this growth spurt's happening, 
uh, literally growing a foot a day, they're going to need more water to keep up that growth. The same thing goes for when they start to flower, those buds or cones start to form. Uh, that's also when they're going to need a little bit more water, almost on a daily basis. As long as that soil is draining, uh, they're going to need need water, not too much time to dry out. And of course, not so much water that they're just waterlogged or soggy, uh, sitting underground. And, um, space. Space is really important for those roots, those rhizomes to put out the roots and become established. Um, in our hop yard, we've spaced them out three feet. That's pretty standard. Uh, it's pretty cool since last year uh, we planted, like I said, about a thousand plants. Uh, on these hills, these mounds that we made, we found that two of them didn't make it through the winter, two of our Chinook plants. Um, we went to just kind of rip out those, those rotted crowns underground and, and put in some new plants. And uh, the roots, <laughs> it was insane. They were about three, yeah, they were about three feet long easily. So we were kind of shocked at how long they got in the course of just a year. Um, so you'd be surprised. But if you do plan on putting them in your own backyard, uh, adequate space is important for them to grow and get that root establishment. At the same time, you don't have to put them in the ground. We were actually able to grow a few in containers, larger containers, about a five-gallon pot will do. Same thing as long as it has good drainage. Um, we had a couple of them that we just kept and transplanted them from these four-inch pots, put them into about a five-gallon size pot, and we actually got pots on them. They did great. They grew. We had them trained up about 12, 13 feet high, and uh, we were super impressed. So uh, they can be growing in a container. Yeah. Yeah, that's fine. They'll grow, they'll grow as tall as you let them. So if they, they would love to be 18, 20 feet high, uh, but if they can't, if you don't have the space for that, um, they'll go as high as you let them, and then they'll start going horizontal. So you can train them to go, and a lot of people will use different trellises or like a pergola and kind of use them to just become this great vine like you know, um, ornamental, or actually use them for pops themselves. And uh, just, just to add, I think, um, I try to tell people that the majority of the yield, the reason why we grow only eat is because the majority of the yield is up around last 30%. Of the so that's why they're going that tall. So if you're really going for yield production numbers, that height is important. Yeah, and you will still get production at those lower heights. So yeah, the room to climb is a good thing to bring up. In, as Andrew was saying, in the U.S., 18 feet is kind of the standard height for trellis systems. In parts of Europe, they do it as high as 23 feet, uh, or even higher than that. So they will grow as high as you almost let them. Uh, as Andrew said, the reason for that is, of course, you get more yield, more hop production at those higher heights. And that's something that nobody really understands. We don't really know exactly why it is that they flower more, there's more production at those heights. Um, we just know it is. Um, so you can, you can grow them shorter. There are some varietals being developed that will work on a dwarf trellising system. So that's kind of a newer thing, is looking at varietals that are still producing the yields commercial growers and you know, the backyard growers want, but at a much shorter height, only 12 feet, 8 feet high. So um, probably see and find more of that in the future as more research goes into that. Um, adequate air circulation, we bring that up because uh, that's going to be super important. These plants, when they get established, maybe not the first year, but by the second or third year, they are like bushes. They, it's, it's unbelievable the amount of new shoots we'll get each spring. You're going to get 20 or 30 new shoots, and if you let them all grow, you're going to have a giant, tangled, prickly bush. Um, just wanting to climb. So pruning becomes really important every spring in cutting back a lot of these unwanted shoots so that you only have maybe one, two, three of the strongest that are going to go the highest. Uh, and then, of course, the energy is going to go into those top shoots, those particular vines, um, because then more energy is going towards flowering so that we can get those hops uh, themselves. 
and the adequate air circulation is going to help out in preventing any of these diseases or pests, um, the mildews and stuff that can kind of thrive in these more damp or stagnant conditions. So if you have an area that does get a little bit of a breeze, but you know it's not constantly blustery, that's ideal for growth. Um, fertilizer is an important thing to bring up. Hops are thirsty and they're they're hungry for the nutrients that allow them to do all that photosynthesis and growth. So a well-balanced fertilizer is also important throughout the growing period, both vegetative as well as when they start to flower. Um, and then pest and disease management, a lot of that is just establishing that your hops are um, in a really healthy, healthy, happy place to begin with. Uh, and if they're healthy and happy to begin with, you'll have minimal problems with, with disease and pest on uh, that plant. Like any of us, if we're, we're healthy, we can fight off any of that risk. Same thing for your plants. So this is just kind of the fun picture part. Uh, planting rhizomes, this is me last year. We got all these rhizomes in here, these funky looking things that you've never seen them before. They look like a bunch of twigs, uh, this thick root, root stock structure. Uh, you'll see all these little new shoots coming out, these little white brand new shoots, uh, also starting to send out roots from those rhizomes. So last year we ordered in around a thousand um, of five different varietals, nuggets, the Tennial, Cascade, Northern Brewer, and Chinook. Uh, and we started them out in a greenhouse. My family um, has a great glass greenhouse in my family's business, and they're third generation horticulturists doing their, their flower grower thing. So we weren't quite ready with our actual space or our trellis system or the actual hop yard yet. So we thought until we can get the whole system in, let's get the plants, let's get the rhizome started out in the greenhouse, uh, and then we'll just, it might be a little more work to transplant them, but we'll, we'll do it that way so the plants get an edge up while we're still prepping and creating the hop yard space. Uh, so we went through doing that and turned out to be really quite successful. Our, our other benefit of starting out this way was last year there was quite a bit of rot with Chinook rhizomes. We know a couple other growers that had bought rhizomes that had, had about 80% of their rhizomes rot versus the normal 10 to 20 percent. So there's always a percentage loss when these rhizomes get dug and cut in the spring, primarily coming from Washington or Oregon, they're getting shipped over. Uh, there's always that time if they're too wet and moist that they can just become soft and squishy and rot. So uh, the benefit of having plants uh, for us last year too is we were planning on putting far more Chinook, about 100 Chinook plants at least, and we only ended up with about I think we ended up with 17 pills of Chinook because we had so much rot. Um, so the benefit was, was having a strong, healthy plant in a pot before it went into the ground outside. Uh, when you plant the rhizomes, it, it can go in horizontally as best, but some of them we just put them in vertically. It's amazing. They are pretty resilient. If they're healthy and there's no rot, those new shoots are just going to start popping up. Uh, so this is just us last year at Farm to Pine, readying and prepping our site. Uh, we had about this one and a half acre space out front, uh, right on Route 25 in Peconic, all full sun. Uh, used to be a sod farm, so it's all grass, just kind of laying fallow. We've been mowing and trimming it on my family's property year after year, but uh, that's about it. So we thought, what better place? This is an awesome location. Uh, so we kind of mapped and measured everything out, uh, ended up putting in um, various rows, each of them spaced about six feet, six feet of dirt that we mowed down so that we were then able to till it up, uh, and then six feet of grass, so we didn't have to deal with as much in terms of weeds, uh, we just have to mow the lawn. <laughs> it's a big, big lawn to mow. Uh, so that was a little bit of our site prep, of just mowing and finding a till, uh, just a lot of community outreach, working with our, our neighbor farmers uh, to borrow and utilize equipment uh, to do so, getting an auger. Uh, Andrew had his brother and a couple of other buddies come in last Memorial Day weekend. All these people keep asking, when is the beer going to be ready? We borrowed all their equipment, like, where's the beer already? We're, like, we're, we're just growing the hops, hold on, step one. 
Um, so this is just a little bit more about you know then building our trellis system uh, over the winter, planning out and talking with some of the growers out of the Pacific Northwest and the style of trellising system that they use. And, uh, for us in New York, again, it's relearning this whole industry out here. It used to be done, but it hasn't been done in a hundred years. How do you do it again? Uh, people looking at us like, wait, my dad's like, you need, you need telephone poles to come in? Like, how, how tall are these things growing? What, what's going on? So uh, we ended up locating, and that was even tough in itself, was finding the structure to create our trellis system. Uh, we ended up using uh, tamarack logs, we were able to find um, a grower um, in upstate New York. Um, did a lot so, of this. yeah, I did a lot of post research. It's, it's a lot harder than you think to find 25 foot untreated wood. Straight, too. Straight, straight logs. You know, so, you yeah, can use locust or um, tamarack or bark um, or cedar. A little bit of research and trying to figure it all out uh, on paper and long distance before actually putting it into place in, in New York. Um, this is kind of our modified design. You can see our buddy Tyler uh, up on that telephone pole like trellising system, measuring some stuff out with our buddy Steve. But you know, you've got to get these long poles. We've got 25 foot poles that we, were, we cut down two feet so that we could get it in the ground three feet and have them still be at least 18 feet high for that industry standard so we would get a good yield. Uh, that, was, that was a fun weekend, pretty challenging. And luckily, Tyler uh, is 6'9", so it helps to have a, a really tall friend when putting in a hot trellising system. We did put them in three feet to the ground for three and a half feet just for frost. So when we got frost, they didn't come up. So that was our, our main concern with that. And we just backfilled it with, with the soil and the sand, you know. And then we borrowed that um, auger from, uh, from a, a vineyard manager around the corner. And he does all the posts for all the vineyards out there. I called him up and said, hey, he's so good for beer too. <laughs> uh, and then after getting all the poles in the ground, then we had to work on the actual cabling grid system. So we did utilize a grid system. Uh, some of the other growers uh, will do more of a basic cabling where you build a string of a cable between between your line of posts and that's what you'll be able to tie that coir twine up to vertically um, for those hops to grow up towards. In our case we ended up uh, putting in cables east to west and then tying them into the ground with an anchor or anchored with anchor supports, uh, east to west design and then we did a north to south uh, grid with cables crossing over that perpendicularly, uh, running above each of our tilled rows. So we actually didn't put logs in. You can kind of see in this bottom bottom corner picture, this photo, we actually didn't put posts in in every single one of our rows. I know some other growers have done that where they've just done every row north to south, for example, and run the cabling along each of those logs or those poles. In our case, um, we kind of separated it out. We had to use far, far fewer logs in that reason. And this is a style uh, that a lot of the West Coast growers use. It's more of a grid system uh, versus just stringing your cable from pole to pole in every single row uh, that you're growing in. Uh, and then stringing the coir. Now this is this is something that we have to repeat every year. So that whole trellising system, getting the logs, getting the cabling in, is a one-time thing, hopefully. Not that we don't have to do that again. Uh, and then of course tilling and, and mounding our roads into nice hills is, is really a one-time thing. But every single year we do have to coir. So this is a, a job that's great if you're not afraid of heights. I uh, sent Andrew up in the, the bucket up there in that cherry picker, as we call it, <laughs> the hop picker. And uh, what he does is he uses this coconut coir. Um, it's just really coconut fibers, they're really coarse, and that's a great thing for the hops to grow onto. It's got a lot of strength, so it can support the vegetative weight as well as the, the hop bearing weight of each vine or each plant. 
uh, on that corner, but uh, it's also a course that they want to grab onto as they're climbing. And we simply just tie it off at the top of each one of these north to south cables, just using a clove hitch, a uh, simple knot. And uh, what, what's then happened is it's actually punched into the ground uh, at the bottom. And there's actually something called a W clip that we use in the hop industry. So there's actually the ability, it looks just like the letter W or M, uh, and it goes in, gets punched into the ground, and then it doesn't want to come up. So even with any tension, if you were to pull up it, it actually won't, uh, won't come out with that, that wave or wind pulling on the string, so it's not something that you have to... I have W clips in every pair of pants, I'm sure. <laughs> so it's not something you have to worry about. In a strong wind, using that. Uh, but stringing the quarter is something that has to be done every single spring. Um, we like to use this sort of a, a quarter or a string of twine because it's also biodegradable since it's just coconut fiber. Uh, in the past, with our, our experimental like, showcase hop yard, we did use hemp. Hemp is another popular twine to use, but we didn't find it to be as strong because it actually weathered during the course of the season and ripped, so we have to replace it. So this has got a lot more strength to it. Um, and then last year, by the first week of June, we were actually able to get all of our plants in the ground. We had the pop yard already, all the twine, our coir was up, uh, and I had my sisters helping me out. Uh, we just moving out all of these plants and transplanting them into the mounded hills that we made. Uh, and again, each of the plants in any of these rows are spaced about three feet all of the same varietal in each row. Uh, so then water and mulching. Uh, this is getting a lot of compost and mulch filled, many truckloads filled with it. I, I throw these pictures in because this is really important for uh, nutri nutrients getting introduced into the soil for your hops, but also as a weed cover. Uh, you know, that compost for the nutrients and then some mulching to help prevent any weeds that are going to be pulling some of the uh, nutrients or uh, just creating excessive growth where you could have the risk of disease. Uh, before we had our irrigation system put in, I used about 500 feet of hose linked up to our greenhouse and I hand watered every one of those baby hot plants. The budget, the budget was kind of tight. A month straight, I think. And then we were able to get a, a drip irrigation system in. Um, so now we can just hook up the hose and feed all the plants or I'm having more drink than the water again. Andrew did not have a nice job. Um, scouting pest and disease management super important in the hop yard. We're kind of constantly keeping an eye out for that. Uh, something you should know too if you're growing your own hops. I throw in this picture in the corner up at the top. That's just of a soft rotted rhizome uh, that we found, you know, we gotten in last year, tried planting it, didn't work out. Um, throwing that in just from the, the rhizome start. Uh, but as your plants are growing and getting taller, they can become really thick and bushy, and as we're trimming them, uh, does become important any excessive shoots that aren't going to be climbing up that foyer. Uh, you want to cut those back. You also might want to strip some of the leaves at the base. A lot of times, a lot of the commercial growers, a lot of just books I've read, and even in our own experience, what we'll do is we'll actually strip the leaves at the base to about two feet high once your plant has climbed to the top or as high as you're allowing it to go. Um, and the reason for that is you're just allowing for more of that air circulation and quite often you're going to get pests closest to the ground that are then going to want to work their way up. So by thinning that out, it just allows for a lot more airflow. You don't have any risk of uh, you know, damp air where you could encourage things like the powdery powder powdery or downy mildew, which are the two different fungal diseases that wiped out uh, the hop crop here in New York State in uh, the late 1800s and early 1900s. So that's super important. Uh, other things to look for too is on the underside of leaves. One of the biggest things we've had to deal with uh, was spider mite. There's a red spot, a red spider mite, and there's also a two-spotted spider mite. They're super tiny, you cannot really see them. But what you can find um, is some webbing. It almost looks like a really faint dust on the underside of the leaf. Uh, and what you see on the top of the leaf is white speckles, really, really tiny white speckling in the center or in a patch. 
Uh, and if you look at the underside of the leaf, you might find a lot of that webbing. That's a sign of a spider mite kind of sucking some of the juices. And I just bring that up because on a small scale, they're not that big a deal. You can pluck those leaves and just kind of get rid of them. Uh, but if it's something that you're finding a lot of that webbing, it could actually do quite a bit of harm and take a lot of those nutrients from your plant and ultimately that's going to decrease your yield uh, if you even get a yield. So I bring that one up because that's the one we found to have the most trouble with. Uh, fortunately, we just kind of kept a handle on it in the beginning just by keeping it out. And literally all we did was pick leaves off. Uh, you can also use a hose and simply spray the underside of the leaves in the early morning to kind of wash some of that stuff away, letting the leaves dry out for the rest of the day in the sun. That way they're not wet overnight and the fungus, you know, fungus risk is there. Um, and we were fortunate to not have to, to spray it all last year. Um, again, our goal is to be as sustainable as poss possible. And we didn't have to use a conventional or even an organic spray of any sort. Uh, because we were able to just kind of keep an early heads up and reduce any risk of, of those spider mites spreading, uh, which was pretty cool because we had hops that we harvested our first year that came from a crop that was unsprayed. So we were pretty, pretty excited about that. Um, one of the biggest hurdles, I was just going to say. I was going to say with the small hop harvesting, you get um, uh, Brooklyn Homebrew. Uh, if you guys get Homebrew, so if you guys support those guys. Uh, they're really good people over there, and they, they're really happy to hear that we had some hops for them, and they're very supportive in getting, you know, our name on their website right away, getting some hops for Because when we have the wet hop harvest, it needs to be picked and, and sold right away, and the brewers need to, you know, we need to work with the brewers to make sure they're ready to brew and stuff like that. So they're very helpful doing that. And if you guys are, um, we'll mention it later, I don't want to interrupt Jack and our thing, but if you are interested in wet hops um, or dry hops in the fall, Please leave your email with us and we'll make sure that you guys get first bid because that's kind of where we want our hops to go. We have the homebrew first. So uh, that's just kind of some basics on just keeping a sharp eye for anything kind of funky uh, in the hop area. There's some really great resources online through Northeast Hop Alliance, uh, also through a lot of the home, like I've got a couple of great. Great folks, if any of you guys want to take a look at them or grow your own hops, um, feel free. Um, you can order any of these books online, but they've got a lot of the basics of what to look for with any of those diseases, as well as any nutrient deficiencies. Again, the fertilizing is going to be important throughout the season, just so you don't have a specific deficiency where your plant's turning yellow, for example, uh, which could be caused by any number of things, whether it's a decrease in um, the potassium or the iron or the nitrogen, but they've got some really great tips in these books and you can also Google it online to shoot us an email um, if you know you have questions in the process of your own home growing and just you know want to know what what direction you should go. Um, so we're definitely welcoming uh, open to that. Uh, last but definitely not least, this is the whole point of growing hops for many Many of us, uh, it's not just as an ornamental, but it's to get, to get the actual flower to hop. So the cone production is going to start uh, looking like a little burr on that upper left corner. It just looks like this funky little spiky thing. Uh, that little burr is going to then form and become the flower or the cone. Uh, different varietals have some different shapes to their cones. So if you have a couple different varietals, you might notice some are larger, smaller, elongated. Uh, tighter, looser, uh, but you'll see these petals forming around them, these bracts, uh, bracteoles, these petals or scales, whatever you want to consider them to be. At the base of them is actually where you get that yellow lupulin. Uh, that's where all the good stuff is uh, that we're going to be using in the brewing process. Uh, so when you're growing your own hops, you might wonder when exactly do I harvest? You're going to want those little burrs to fully form and become these cones or flowers. Um, you'll start to notice them being quite fragrant. You can definitely pick a hop off early. And if you notice that yellow uh, oil getting on your hands, that is a great sign. That means um, you've got that sticky yellow resin, the lupulin. Uh, also, if you were to pick one of those cones and find that it felt papery to touch, and if you were to compress it between your fingers, 
and it were to spring back into the shape, that, that cone, pine cone-like shape, then you know your hops are ready to harvest. If you were to compress it and it were to stay kind of smushed, um, you're probably going to want to wait a few more days to test it again. So when you have the yellow lupulin, it's papery to touch and it, it springs back after being compressed, then you know you're at an optimal time for harvest. This is usually happening uh, around mid to the end of August, uh, again, depending on the season and what the weather's like, and even from one varietal to another. Which did happen, happen, happen last year, right before that when I got back. So <laughs> it was kind of bad time <laughs> Yeah, it was like three days before our wedding, and we had to harvest hops. It was going to rain the next day, and we had a wet hop delivery with Brooklyn Homebrew at the time. So you don't want to harvest your hops when it's going to be a torrential downpour. Uh, you do want to harvest them when it's dry, and that's just going to be ideal, uh, not because it's going to increase your water weight, but you don't want to have the risk of any mildew uh, in your wet hops, your fresh hops. You want to pick them on a nice, dry, calm day. Um, we found that, well, the only way we were going to get it done was if we harvested at night. So we did a midnight hop picking uh, with my brother-in-law and sister-in-law. And uh, it was very successful. It was actually pretty fun. Um, for home cleaning, for, I should say, for home growing and a backyard scale, you can actually hand pick the hops. We actually did all hand picking last year which was great because then you're allowing the vegetative part of the plant, all the leaves and stuff to stay and still be getting energy and putting energy towards the roots for the winter. You can also get multiple harvests this way. The earlier hops that are ready, you can pick those. Maybe you've got a few others still developing on these side arms, on these laterals, um, at each of those joints, and maybe they, they need a few more days or another week. So you can get multiple harvests that way. Um, the way a lot of the bigger scale commercial growers will, will probably end up doing this year now that uh, John Gonzella of Gonzella Hops, another fellow hop grower out the Waiting River, uh, he actually got funding for a Kickstarter campaign for a harvester from Germany, uh, will actually be cutting down that, that vine, that plant. So you can do it either way, hand picking, or you can actually take it cut down um, that, that plant, that vine at the base, just a few inches above the soil with that coir or twine and all, and cut it at the top, and then you can lay it down horizontally to hand pick. In our case, we'll run it through this machine for picking for separating from the leaves. And uh, that's the other great thing, too, with this coir is it's biodegradable, so you can literally just compost that coir with the vegetative part of your plant if you choose to harvest that way. Um, yeah, if you pick it too soon, you're not going to have the lupulin fully developed potentially. So you would want to wait till you actually are finding that yellow resin at the base of those petals within the hot flower. If you pick it too late, the quality of it starts to go down, and picking it too late would be when those cones are turning brown. So you do want to pick it when it's um, at its prime. Just like harvesting any other fruit or vegetable, you're going to start to get some off flavors if it's too late, and if it's not quite ripe yet, and then you're not getting the full um, benefit or purpose of what you wanted to harvest it for anyway. So, once you have harvested or plan on harvesting that timing, that's a great time to be planting a wet hop ale and brewing with those fresh wet hops. Usually it takes about or it takes about four times as much wet hops as it does dry hops for that style of brew because a lot of your hop is water weight when first picked. Um, if you can't do that style, it's kind of a one-time thing or, or you know, one time a year that harvest style wet hop ale. Uh, the other option, of course, is to dry hop, so we can use hops at other times of the year. So a great, easy way to do this at home, um, what we actually ended up doing last year, too, was just taking big screens. We had a couple of big um, like door screens. You could use a window screen, uh, keeping those hops out of the sunlight because they'll start to oxidize and break down in the sun, so you want to have them in a shaded place, a nice area. We actually put a fan underneath. Um, to just help in the drying process, and in about 24, 48 hours, 
our hops are completely dried out, very much papery, um, and even so much that the lupulin, the yellow uh, resin, is starting to kind of fall out if we were to shake the hop upside down. Then you know they're dry and ready to be vacuum sealed and then put into cold storage, whether it's in the fridge or freezer for when you want to brew with them and can use them um, with your next, your next batch of beer. Um, they'll keep like that easily for a year. So that's, of course, the best way to, to dry and preserve them. And then you have a whole leaf dried hop. So um, there's no pelletizing happening there. But then you have you know, your own fresh homegrown hops that you just dry and uh, vacuum seal and put in cold storage for use. Uh, and then the last thing, of course, is after you've done your harvest, is pruning them back so you can hand harvest and pick off the individual hops or let them stay on the vine and the vegetation will continue to grow. Uh, not so much growing in, in the regard of climbing, but just gathering energy from the sun, putting that into the root system. That's what we actually ended up doing this last season. Uh, and then before um, winter really comes when you're getting to that point of the first frost, that's when you're going to want to cut them down uh, just two, three inches above the ground. Um, again, you can compost all of that other matter. And if you've already cut it down when you harvest it, that's fine too. Uh, the plants will go through a period of winter dormancy. Uh, it's really good at this point to also throw in some extra mulch if you've got it because that's going to help to protect uh, those plants. It's also putting a little bit more nutrients uh, into the soil for those roots over the course of the winter, and they're going to utilize that in the spring uh, when they start to send those first shoots up. So you can see some of the first shoots coming up on the bottom of this slide. And yeah, pre-mulching for our spring. Uh, but each of our plants this year really put up about 20 or so shoots. Uh, which then you want to cut back. So a lot of that first growth, you end up trimming back each spring and just choosing one or two of the strongest. Um, the plant is going to continue to send up more, more shoots uh, as the spring progresses. So once they're established, they, they, they grow like weeds. It's really incredible. Uh, so that's a little bit to set yourself up for success with growing hops at home and a little bit of what we've done at Farm to Pint. I just kind of like to end on a note on the future of New York hops. Um, great thing with, with hops being grown on the East Coast with a lot of growers. You know, I've seen this movement, uh, talking to people and, and just seeing it online, connecting with other growers all over the country as people are trying to grow these small-scale hop yards. Uh, it's great because uh, here in New York now, you know, brewers have an option to source locally grown hops, a locally grown ingredient for their beer. Uh, and I throw in this little term here um, of hop terroir. So you might hear that term thrown around with wine quite a bit. Uh, it's something that's still pretty, pretty new, um, unused in the beer world, but finding that your varietal of hops are going to be slightly different depending on your location that they're grown because of the microclimate, the water, the soil. So hops of a particular variety grown here versus Washington could have completely different alpha levels, completely different aromas, um, and other hints, and hints of flavors just because of the microclimate in one region to the next. So you're, you're hearing that a lot in the wine world. Um, not as much in the beer world, but it is something to think about um, when it comes to making beer and how you can have distinctly unique flavors of your beer depending on the ingredients, these basic ingredients like hops that are going into it. Um, future of New York hops is just relearning this industry. It's a really exciting time. A lot of people getting uh, all amped up and, and growing hops and seeing what works and what varietals are the best. And, just having fun with it. Of course, there's always these challenges overcoming any risks of those mildews that did wipe out the industry uh, years ago. And I know that Cornell's uh, hired a hot specialist in the Northeast, Steve Miller, who's been a really great, really great resource for a lot of the uh, Northeast and New England growers uh, in, in trying to overcome any of those hurdles. Beer is agriculture. It really is getting back to that this is an agricultural product. Um, it's brewed locally and it can be grown locally. 
And I bring that up too because New York State has a really exciting uh, law that just got passed last June. It became law in January of this year um, called the Farm Brewery Law. And it mimics the farm winery law that went into play in the 1970s, allowing New York State to have a lot of farm wineries um, growing grapes locally in the state that are then being used to produce that wine. And uh, in, in the term or world of beer, that's, that's happening now. And it's really exciting to know that you can, you can have a specific licensing as a farm brewery if you are using a certain percentage of New York State grown hops and barley and yeast by weight. Um, that ultimately, it starts out right now at 20%, but in the next 12 years, it's going to be 90%. So 12 years from now, you can actually choose to buy a beer that is a New York label beer, meaning with that label that 90% of the ingredients by weight, not including water, uh, came from the state. Uh, and I think that's pretty cool. It's pretty exciting to know you have that option. As yeah, a this one had it. Um, it was all the work, you know. We put in these hops, and now we're giving the brewers their chance to brew with these hops. But ultimately, it's going to come down to you guys. The beer drinkers, are you going to ask your breweries, you know, where are you getting hops from? Are you really interested in drinking truly local beer? Um, I know we are, and uh, we hope that you are too. Because the brewers are given the option to look on the breweries and we talk to them and they think it's a great idea and stuff, but for them to really be pushed to do something like this, it's going to come down to everybody asking them or demanding them. Increasing the demand for that kind of product and everything else. So, we hope you guys think that's cool and see it. Yeah, it's, it's just a, another option out there for getting um, you know, different styles of beer again based upon you know, things are going to taste. You can take the same recipe and it could taste completely different because you're using ingredients coming from one location or another, even though they're the same varietal. So, it's exciting and just expanding the craft beer world that much more with different styles. The one thing I think, uh, the idea of wet hops, um, we don't see that a lot here on the East Coast or um, in New York as far as the wet hop thing. Um, it's really cool. And then, you know, when we were in Washington, Oregon, and we go to the wet hop ale festival and all the food, you know, all the different wet hops and stuff. And now, with growing hop in New York, we're going to start seeing wet out bells, hopefully. You know, I want more wet out bells, and I hope you do too, because they're really good, first of all. And now we're going to actually have local wet hops. They're not going to be shipped in more. You know, like, um, for example, Blue Point, they were shipping in a lot of wet hops, um, which is a crazy amount of money to deliver because they need to be proven and put it out and taken for optimal results. So, with more hop growers out there, and if we can push the wet hop thing, the wet hop tail, um, I think that's the direction that I'd like to see uh, some of these, these craft breweries kind of going. All right, that's it.